if you are hurting today. Even if it's not something you dwell on a lot. If you are struggling, today's message is for you. If you are not, it's still for you. (laughs) Because it is going to hopefully fill you with a sense of joy and peace in your life. You see, John has written this letter to a little church. Well, we don't, I say little. In those days, all churches were little by our standards, but to a congregation that had been literally torn in half, torn apart by a group of people who they thought they could trust and love and depend on, who then began to chase after a lie and who began to follow this thing that a few weeks ago we, we described as what's called Gnosticism, and that where they believed in these, these secrets that you could only obtain if you were in certain groups. And, and they began to teach that either it didn't matter what you did in the flesh because what was in the Spirit was what really mattered, or they totally thought the flesh was evil and to be avoided at all costs. And this church was crushed. The people that were left behind after this happened, after these people yanked themselves out and left and went off. But they didn't just leave. They came back and encouraged them to follow them and to leave as well. And they were hurting. And Paul, and Paul, John, I told you at the beginning of this series I might do that. John, all along through this book, has been teaching them the pillars of understanding what it meant to truly be a follower of Christ. There was the pillar of truth, there was the pillar of love, and there was the pillar of obedience. And he continually asked them, by the Holy Spirit's leadership in their lives, to examine their lives. Not that they would judge harshly or look down upon those that had left, but to examine where they were and to find out Truly that they dwelled in Christ. And now at the end of the letter, this morning in Bible study, we looked at verses 1 through 12 and what it means to trust Christ to help us when we're struggling against the wiles of the world, the things that the world would try to teach us, the things that they would try to lead us astray to do. We talked about the testimony of the Holy Spirit that lives in us, the testimony of God's Word. And we talked about how that can strengthen us as we live our daily lives. But now we come to verses 13 through 20. And somebody's going to go, well, why didn't you include 21? Well, I'll read you 21 just so we can say we read it. But it really is just a little postscript that ties everything together. It would take me 20 more minutes to explain verse 21. So I decided, you know what, I'll just let you go home and read verse 21 on your own later on. But I will maybe, if I have time, allude to it just for a minute. Because I have a lot to share. There's a lot of content today. And so I don't want to dwell too long on any one thing. I want you to walk with me as the Holy Spirit guides us. Because John gives his young church friends, and through the millennia he gives us not three, as a typical sermon always has to have three points. Actually, this must be a double sermon. Because he gives them six things that they know that they have. Because he wants to leave them encouraged. Three of them are found in verses 13 to 15. Three are found in verses 18 through 20. And then in the middle, there's a little object lesson dealing with prayer. And so we'll talk about that for just a moment as well. So let's dig right in and get started. What are the six things that John says that we can know that we have? Did you notice how many times the word know was used? I tried to emphasize it each time as we read. Six things that we know that we have if we are in Christ. The first one very simply is found in verse 13. He says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now that sounds a whole lot like another letter that John wrote, doesn't it? 
If you go back and look at the Gospel of John, if you want to, you can stick your finger there at 1 John chapter 5 and flip back to the Gospel of John chapter 20. And at the very end of the 20th chapter of John's Gospel, he says these words, But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Very similar, but there is a marked difference in the two. Listen to it again. In John chapter 20, John says the reason the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this life of Jesus and all that it entails was so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, so that by believing you may have life. This has an evangelistic purpose. He says, I wrote this so that if you are not yet convinced of who Jesus is, by reading my account of Jesus' life, you will come to know that he is the Messiah and by believing in him have life. Now you get to the book of 1 John and he's not writing a letter to people who aren't believers. He says outright, I have written these things to you who do believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, these false teachers have been trying to say to them, you don't even know what being a Christian means. There are so many things that you've never experienced. There's so many secrets you've never been made aware of. There's so many things you need to come and join us and together we will learn these things together And John said, let me tell you something. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. And I want you to know that. I want you to know that with all the confidence that you can have. Now let's remember, and we talked about this in Bible study. I don't know if you did in your class. We did in mine. But in Bible study, we talked about that believing in something or someone is different than believing something. You can say I believe the facts about something, but to believe in something implies a level of trust. If I believe in aerodynamics, I'm willing to get onto a plane. I may believe those planes fly, but I ain't getting on one. So I don't really believe in it. I believe it. I just don't trust it. There are lots of other things that we could believe, but not necessarily believe in. And John says, those of you who believe in Jesus the Messiah, or in the name of Jesus, those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God, you are the ones who have put your trust in him, and I'm here to tell you that you can know that you have eternal life. All of those evidences that we talked about during Bible study this morning, all those testimonies testify to the fact that Jesus is who he said he was, and now you can believe it's true. Isn't it good to know? And this eternal life is not just something that happens the moment we die. It starts now in life. It starts right now, and we recognize the fact that as we begin to live, when we live live in view of eternal life, when we live in view of eternity, our total perspective on now changes. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I would work with young people, and typically, you know, a young person go through the youth group, and they graduate out of youth group, you don't really want to leave youth group. You kind of like being in youth group, and you kind of like hanging around with the other teenagers, and next thing you know, you're 18, and then you're 19, and then you're 20, and you're still coming to youth events, and it's the youth pastor's job to go and say, I think it's time to graduate. You need to kind of move on, and they would sit with me, and we'd talk, and they'd say, I just, I don't think I'm ever going to have anybody that will love me, and I'm never going to find anyone, and I just... I keep listening to Karen Carpenter over and over singing, I said goodbye to love. No one ever cared if I should live or die. Time and time again, the chance for love has passed me by. And I just sit there and smile and say, hi, here we go again. Two weeks later, you're not going to believe it. I found her, and she's wonderful, and she's awesome, and we're going to get married in six months, and it's going to be great, and we're going we're gonna to... 
buy a farm in South Georgia, and we're going to raise horses, and we're going to do all this, and it's going to be wonderful. Their whole perspective on life changes because they now have someone that they love. And you know what? Sometimes it really works out that way. And sometimes it doesn't, but that's okay, too. That's another story for another day. But it's amazing how when we come to put our trust in Jesus Christ and to know that we have an eternity out there in front of us, our perspective on this 60 or 70 or 80 years that we live here totally changes. It suddenly really becomes prep work for what's going to happen afterwards. We don't live our whole lives trying to figure out how we can get the most out of these few decades that we're allowed to live here. We've come to see that this is the only training ground for the future. And John says, listen, I don't want you to let these people worry you. I don't want you to let them lead you astray. You have eternal life. That's the first thing. The second thing is we know that we can have confidence that we have the ear of God. Verse 14, he says, now this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know that he hears whatever we ask. I took the if out just so I could finish the sentence. We'll put the if back in just a minute. Because that if is not an if of doubt, it's an if of affirmation. It's so because or since we know that. If we know that, and we do. But the first thing John says is, you can know that you have the ear of your heavenly Father. He is listening to you. When we were in Tanzania... I told you this before, when we first got there, literally just a few weeks prior to our arriving on station, they had taken out all the old crank phones and put in rotary dial phones. Are any of you old enough to remember crank phones in the United States? If you are, oh, a couple of you can, okay. You crank that little phone and the operator would answer at the other end and say, I'd like to call Dar Salaam. And they'd say, okay, I'll call you back when I have a line. Three hours later, your phone would ring. Dar Salaam is on the line. And you'd talk to him. Well, they got rid of that, but their system was still pretty archaic compared to ours. And many, many times we would call Dar es Salaam from Kigoma, needing to talk to the treasurer, and we would hear something like this. Tunasikitika, and you hang up. We're sorry, but all the lines are being used. Please try again later. Some of you remember that here in this country. Before we had cell phones and all that stuff, you know, you would try to call on a holiday, Mother's Day, Christmas. Mother's Day was the worst, Christmas Day. And at first, you actually got a recording. We're sorry, all the lines are busy. Please try again later. And after a while, they had what they called the fast busy. Remember the fast busy signal? What that meant was not that the line was busy, but the circuit was busy. And what did you do? You hung up, you waited five minutes, you tried again. And sometimes on a Christmas Day or a Mother's Day, you might try for an hour or two to get a line through to talk to mom for five minutes to tell her you love her, did you get your chocolates? You never have to wait when you talk to God. The line is always open. He is always listening. And that is not trite, and that is not overly simplified. It is just true as anything we can believe. And he says that if we are in him, if we have eternal life, if we have been adopted as his children, he hears us when we pray. We don't have to say, well, maybe he's too busy. I should come back and try again later. We share the needs that we have with him. But not only do we know we have his ear, we also know that we have what we request. Look at the end of verse 14, 15. Excuse me. If we, know that he, if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked him for. Well, that's a pretty strong statement. We know that we have what we have asked him for. I can't believe in a translation like the whole one, they would actually end the sentence with a preposition. Where is Amanda Badger? You should send them a letter and say, stop this ending preposition sentences with prepositions. A preposition is not a good thing to end a sentence with. Um, okay, three of you got that. All right. 
But John is bold enough to say, and listen, 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 listen. You've heard me preach enough times, for good or for bad, that you know that I will tell you that every single word has potential meaning. It has meaning, but you can't skip over anything. Do you notice he does not say, and I have looked at a dozen translations, he does not say, we know that we will have what we have asked him for. That's not what he says. We know that we have what we have asked him for. Completed action in the present tense. You say, whoa, whoa, now, Pastor, come on. I prayed lots of other things, and I didn't get it right then. No, but at the moment that we pray, at that moment, the thing that we have asked for has already begun the process of being given to us. You say, okay, now, I know this is a bait and switch. I know, I know you're fixing to pull the chain on me. Of course I am. Because you're all smart people, and you know that I would love to have a portion. Actually, I'd love to have Jim Garrett's portion. No, not really. I'm just kidding. But I would love, but you know what? I may ask God for a portion a hundred times. God may say, you know what? You don't need a portion. What you need is that Hyundai Elantra that your mother-in-law used to drive. Only to church on Sundays or something, you know. And, and, and that's what you need. There is a conditional clause in the middle of that passage. Did you see it when we read past it? In verse 14, whenever we ask anything according to his will. Say, oh, there you go. There you have it. There goes my Porsche. There goes my six-figure salary. Yes, there it goes. Replaced by the matchless, incomparable blessings of God. Now, which one would you rather have? Reverend Ike, which one do you want? You see, we get so caught up in what we think that we want to have, things that we think we need, things that we see from our perspective, and God says, you just don't get it, do you? I know, five-year-old Reese, that I promised you we could go to Six Flags on Saturday, and I know you want to go, and I know you say it's no problem you have 101.3 fever and that you still want to go. I know that you want to go. I know you want it with all your heart, but I have to say, no. You just don't love me. No, I do love you. And our Heavenly Father, Jesus says, if you who are sinful know how to give your children good gifts, don't you know your Father in Heaven will give good gifts? So he says, listen, this is not about limiting your freedom. This is about freeing you to get something much bigger than you could ever have dreamed to have asked for. So what we do instead of saying, Lord, please give me a Porsche, is, Lord, please help me to have whatever you think I need and to be happy with it and to be content with it and to recognize I get it from your gracious and loving hand. And I can guarantee you before you finish that prayer, he's already begun the process of answering it. Now, the visible results may not come immediately, but at that moment, we have what we've asked for. Now, before we get to the other three, first we have eternal life, we have the ear of our Heavenly Father, and we have the certainty that we will receive what we ask when we ask according to His will. He gives us a little example. He wants to give us a little case study about how this works in real life. And what's so amazing is, you would have thought, John, might would have thought about taking an example from a personal need. Jesus did, the woman who wasn't getting just treatment for the judge, the, the neighbor that needed three loaves of bread, and, and, and they were personal needs. John doesn't talk about that. John says, no, I'm going to give you a better example of that. I want to talk to you about what happens when you pray for other people. There's a word for that. It's called intercession, to stand between a person and God and pray for them on their behalf. And Lord love him, John I know this was inspired by the Holy Spirit, so I know it's there for our benefit and our edification. But these two verses have cost 
more consternation on the parts of sinful people, including me, than a lot of passages in Scripture. But let's just read again and see what he says. He says, let me give you an example. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask and God will give life to him to those who commit sin that doesn't bring death. Let's stop right there first and just explain. First of all, John says, when you see your brother. He didn't say when you hear about your brother. Hello? We hear a lot of things. But if you are allowed by God to see a brother or sister slipping into a sin. doesn't mean they're not Christians, but they're, they're, they're slipping away from where they need to be. John says, your job is to pray for them. Your job is to begin the process of lifting them up in prayer, and God will give them life. He will forgive them. You say, well, now, wait a minute. You mean if they don't ask for forgiveness, if I ask for forgiveness for them? God will forgive them even if they don't ask for it. I'm just telling you what the book says. Both Jesus and Stephen, as they were dying, said, Lord, do not lay this against their charge. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If Jesus could pray for other people's forgiveness, if Stephen, as he was dying, could pray for other people's forgiveness, I think we probably could pray God for other people's forgiveness too. I also think it means that we need to be involved in actively helping that person understand lovingly where they have strayed, where they've gone, how they've wandered. We need to lovingly go to them as a brother or sister in Christ and say, can I talk to you? I'm concerned about what I'm seeing. I'm concerned. We talked about this back in Hebrews. We talked about this in other places. James talked about us coming together, challenging each other, praying for one another. Now, then in the next verse, John puts a little caveat there. I'm sorry, it's at the end of 16. There is sin that brings death, and I'm not saying he should pray about that. For whatever reason, we've gotten so fixated on what that sin is that we forget that's not really what he's talking about. What he's really talking about is praying for people who are Christians who just get off track. Now, beloved, maybe you're not like this. Maybe you're a better person than me. But i got to tell you, there are times when I will see a person, probably not one of you, because it's kind of my job to pray for y'all. I get paid for that. But um, Otherwise, I wouldn't pray at all. But I'm just people out this is that loose wire and I can't put my I, okay I will see a brother or sister I will see somebody on Facebook that I have known for years I know they're believers as much as you can know anybody's a believer I believe they have Jesus Christ in their heart and they begin wandering off into sin and I go boy I sure hope they find some way to get take care of that I sure hope they wake up and see what they're doing to themselves I sure hope somebody comes along and can I confess to you it takes me 30 minutes for it dawns on me well dummy head why don't you just pray for them no, seriously, why don't you just pray for them? Say, Lord, I am praying on behalf of my friend, Don, who has fallen into sin. He has been deceived by the evil one. He has allowed himself to follow his fleshly desires rather than your will. I pray that you will forgive him and bring him back to life. Not like he's dead, like he's lost his salvation, but he's lost the benefit of his salvation. I don't know what the sin is that leads to death. Some people believe it's a sin that's so heinous like Ananias and Sapphira that God literally has to snatch them from life some people believe it's the blasphemy of the holy spirit which jesus said was when you say that the work of god is really the work of satan some people say it's just turning your back on god and and rejecting jesus christ rejecting to accept him as savior any one of those could be valid excuses and i'm not and john is not saying you should not pray for them he's saying that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about god forgiving them and giving them life 
If a person has turned their back on Jesus Christ and refused to accept Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior, the only thing they can do is to repent. Now, we can pray that God would lead people in their lives to help them to repent, but we can't ask God to forgive them of that sin and save them. They have to ask for that. And whether you believe that God elects them or whether you believe it's of their own free will, the bottom line in the end is the same, is that they have to do that. But when we're talking about fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, then it is our responsibility. He says in verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin, and believe me, there is sin, I had to believe me, there is sin that does not bring death. So he said, you need to learn that you have God's ear and you will get what you ask if you ask according to my will. So pray for those around you when you see them fall into sin. Back to the list. Three more things and we'll be done. And each of these verses starts with the word no. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not continue in sin. Now, the reason I add continue is because we've already had this conversation. You know this does not mean that you never, ever sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we all know because we've all experienced times but we don't sin as a practice. It's not our choice. We tend to be, we're tempted. We give in to that temptation. We're, we're sorrowful. We're repentant. We come to God. We confess that sin. We ask him, and he cleanses us and puts us back into right relationship with him. So we can say, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not continue. They're not habitually. They are not given to sin. But the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Who is the one who is born of God? Well, that's Jesus Christ. He says, we know that everyone who's been born of God, that's all of us as believers, does not sin. But the one, the one who is born of God, and actually some translations actually have who has been born of God, and that's Jesus Christ, the only unique one that was uniquely born of God, different from all the rest of us, does what? Somebody say it. Keeps us protects us we know that we have been given the power of the protection of jesus christ himself to protect us from falling into sin now will we sin of course we will but only when we stop trusting in his keeping power it doesn't mean the power is not there. It just means we don't avail ourselves of it. But John says, listen, I want you to know, no matter what these guys say about the flesh and the spirit, and the flesh is evil, so you might as well do it anyway because it's already evil anyway. Listen, you have been given the power to not dwell in sin because Jesus himself is keeping you. I love that word. Keeping means protecting and cherishing and treasuring and loving and guarding, he will keep you, and the evil one will not be able to get a hand on you. That word touch literally means grasp you, grab you. Jesus is keeping you. If that's not good news, I don't know what is. Listen, you don't have to fight this battle with sin on your own. You don't have to struggle by yourself. You don't have to try and figure out how to not make that same mistake. You call out on the power of the one who is keeping you. He will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, the psalmist says. Number five, we know that we have a special position. We know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. We live in a world where we want every line to be blurred. But John says, beloved, you either are in God or you are in the world. 
you are either belonging to him or you belong to the world. And I want to make sure that you know that you have a position of peace and safety and security because you are in God. You are of God. You are with God. And so you're under his control. You are not under the power of the evil one. And lastly, verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We know that we have insight by God's Holy Spirit of who Jesus truly is. The world will tell us every day, great man, wonderful teacher, obviously uniquely blessed by God to be able to teach us how we should live, died a martyr's death, vindicated by his resurrection. But son of God, oh, come on. You really believe that the infinite God, the God who Jesus himself said is a spirit, could live inside this man? We said, no, we don't believe that at all. We believe he is this man. That Jesus Christ is the one true God. And in knowing that we have our place in Him, and the result is that the eternal life that He has becomes ours. Now let me finish by asking you, what does this have to say to us? What does it have to say for those of you who have been hurting who have been hurt by people who should have cared for you. Your church, a church in the past. Maybe this church. Maybe past leaders in this church or other churches. Maybe people that you trusted. Maybe a Christian friend. Listen, first of all, understand that no matter how much a person, because of their sinfulness, may hurt you, you don't reside in them. You reside in Christ. You don't reside in a church. You reside in Christ. God is is not finished with the work that he is doing. We know that we are a group of sinners who have come together as best we know how to live in a way that would be pleasing to God in a way that he would lead us and guide us. But we also know that because of our sin, sometimes we're going to hurt each other. And sometimes in ways that are almost unforgivable. But I want to beg you to remember, first of all, you have eternal life. This is a short, temporal time frame in which we live. And then we are snatched into eternity to live forever in a place where there is no more sin, no more sorrow. Remember that you have God's ear when you are hurting. You can cry out to Him. And as you pray and according to His will, He will bring you healing. He will speak to that prayer. He will answer that if you will put your trust and allow Him to take those hurts that are in your heart and massage them and heal them and put the balm of His grace on there so that you can be, become clean and whole again. Know that you are being kept by Jesus Christ. He is snuggling you against His chest. He is loving you and caring for you, even though at times I know you feel alone because sometimes I have felt alone too. Know that you are found in God and among His people and know that you have a place in God Christ. Remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He has been grafted into you and you have been grafted into
to him. And so we become one. God is in charge. He always has been and he always will be. You may not know what the next step is going to be in your life. You may not know what's going to happen next week or next month with that loved one that you care about. You may not know if you're going to have the courage and the strength to make the tough decisions that you're going to have to make. But you know who's in charge. And you know that he says, I will walk with you. I will keep you in my arms. I will hold you. You are an eternal child, brother, sister of mine. You are always in my care. You are always with me. And I am always in you. Don't be afraid. So with that in mind, and with the joy that brings, let's pray together.